it. Yes, we can release their child care right now. So we've got workers that are willing to take the little ones. And then at the end of the morning, we'll have uh, children's ministry. Or are we taking, no, this week we're taking a break from that, I think. I never know. Not taking a break. We are, no, no children's ministry. There is no children's ministry today later. Okay, good. All right. So when preaching is done, we're done. <laughs> if you have a Bible with you, turn in it to uh, John chapter 18. We're going to pause our series on the letter to Hebrews to focus on a different topic for the next few weeks. You've heard us mention in different contexts the phrase gospel culture. Uh, that's a phrase that was coined by Ray Ortland Jr. I heard it when I went to the uh, pastor's college and took a class from him in April. And that has stuck in my heart and my mind. And we've talked about it a lot as elders, and we felt like now is the time to start teaching on that at some length. So let me describe what's meant by gospel culture. First and foremost, it's the gospel itself as the root of it, what we call gospel doctrine. That's the message that God rescues sinful people like us from the judgment we deserve. He restores us to peace with Him. He grants us eternal life and a renewed world to come. All of that through the perfect life, atoning death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel doctrine, which is the biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving, to quote uh, Dr. Orland. Gospel culture, then, is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. Shared experience. In other words, if we have truly believed gospel doctrine, it should create a certain kind of culture among us, a certain way of relating to each other, a way of life that's consistent with the good news of the gospel. Changed lives and changed community is the biblical expectation for those who follow Jesus. And we have an example in Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul confronted Peter for how he was acting toward fellow believers. They were not from a Jewish background. They were Gentiles. They hadn't been circumcised. They didn't follow the law of Moses. And he was starting to draw back from them and not, not associate with them, not eat with them anymore. And Paul looked at that and he says, That's just, there's something wrong with that. Peter, you know that even the Gentiles are accepted by God through faith and not by keeping the law of Moses. He said, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You don't want to be unsaying with your actions what you're saying with your lips. If you're saying that we're accepted by God through faith in Christ and then you act as if there's more that needs to be done, you're, you're, you're unsaying the gospel by your actual practice. So there's a way of acting and relating to one another that's consistent, that's in step with the gospel, and there's a way that's not in step, that's inconsistent, that says something else. It's a different gospel. And so gospel culture is just that kind of life that we have that's in step, that, that flows directly from. It's got the, the qualities of it. Um, so anyway, to quote Ray's longer definition, gospel culture is the corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, vibe, feel, tone, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, 
freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness, indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. So as your pastors and as your friends, that describes what we want for you and for us going into 2022. We want everyone to experience that kind of healthy community in this church because we live in a day, and you know this, when the dominant feel and tone of our society is not that description. There's a lot of anxiety, fear, anger, dishonesty, posturing, rumors and gossip, self-righteousness and pride. Is that not so? Well, Jesus came to fundamentally change that human experience by creating a community that's sweetened by the gospel, that's being renewed, it's being restored into what God intended. And it looks a certain way, it feels a certain way, it sounds a certain way. So in the next few weeks, we're going to go deeper into what that looks like. But today, we're going to start at the high level with the foundation of which this, from which this gospel culture flows. What supports the whole thing? And that's why we're going to look at John chapter 18, verses 33 to 38. This is a conversation between Jesus and the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So we celebrated Jesus' birth this week. Now we're jumping forward to the day of his death, the day on which he was crucified, which is what his birth and his life were all leading up to. So let's read this passage and then ask for God's help to understand. Beginning in verse, eight, verse 33 of John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Let's pray. We ask now, Lord, for a glimpse of things above, things that are not of this world, a reminder of the realities that we're not hearing about on a daily basis in our regular conversation in the world, but they are, they are given to us by you in this book, and by your Spirit we can understand and see things that aren't visible. And so, Lord, bring those back to our mind today and show us the reality of these things and show us the goodness of all that you intend for us to experience and then to pass on to other people. We want to enjoy all that you want us to enjoy. We want to rest in the security of being in your kingdom, and we, we pray that today you would advance that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's the starting point for gospel culture. Um, 
It's the realization that Jesus is creating a community that is not of this world. He's creating a community that is not of this world. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The context that Pilate is trying to find out if Jesus is a threat to Roman rule. So the Jews arrested him, had their trial, said that he was guilty of something, bring him to Pilate, we want him crucified, we can't do that, we're not authorized, but we want you to do it, so do it. And it's not really clear to Pilate what Jesus has done wrong. Why, why are people so upset? Why are they uh, creating this mob, mob scene and calling for this man's blood? Uh, so he questions him. What have you done? He's heard that he's been called the king of the Jews, uh, which if he's a king, if he's a rival to Caesar, well, that would be reason to crucify somebody in his mind. And so he's probing. He's trying to find out who's this Jesus. And Jesus doesn't deny he's a king. But he answers, my kingdom is not of this world. And again, my kingdom is not from the world. Now, what does he mean by that? Put it simply, his kingdom is of heaven, and it is from heaven. Its source, its substance is from God, not from the world. It's the heavenly kingdom that's breaking into the kingdom of this world, and it's only seen in the transformed hearts and lives of people who are being caught up into it by Christ, its king. For example, in Luke eleven twenty, 20, Jesus said, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And in Luke 9.10, Jesus 9.2, he sent out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So the way you know that the kingdom of God is moving in is when evil, pain, and suffering are being driven out. It's when we see God at work renovating a fallen world, one person at a time, fixing what is broken. That's the kingdom that is not of this world. It is not from this world. Pilate thought Jesus might be trying to start a political revolution, a revolt against the Romans. But what Jesus came to do was free people from the power and the penalty of sin. And ultimately, from all that sin has destroyed in the world, ultimately into a renewed world where there isn't any sin or any of its effects. That's what he came to do. That's what his kingdom is bringing in to our experience. Believers, according to Peter, are called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. There's this, there's this transfer of one place to another, one kind of reality to another greater and more beautiful one, away from the brokenness, the darkness, the fallenness, into something that's healthy and life-giving and hopeful and eternal. We've been called into that to be citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but gathered together here on earth as a foretaste of it in a church. Josh Blunt, who, talked, uh, who taught a workshop at our pastor's conference, said it very helpfully. He said, the church is the only society whose present existence, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, belongs to the life of the age to come belongs to the life of the age to come. It's, it's the future heavenly realm, the current heavenly realm, brought into our earthly realm in a way that you can see its reality 
because it has changed a bunch of people. And they're drawing their life from that. That's what's animating them. The Holy Spirit has arrived. And illumination of God's will has arrived. And this new heart that don't, wants to know and worship Him, that's all arrived. And it starts to change a people. And that is what we can see, the reality of heaven in earth, in this changed community. And to, to use Ortland's language, when somebody becomes a citizen of this new kingdom, the relationships, the vibe, the feel, the tone, the values and the priorities, the aroma, they all take on the, the qualities of this heavenly kingdom. The church environment becomes a, a foretaste and a down payment on the good things to come. Now, here's two implications of that reality. First, it means there's an unavoidable strangeness that believers in Christ will experience in this world. There is an unavoidable strangeness. You don't totally fit in, and you never will. The writer of Hebrews said that faithful believers of old acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens on the earth. Exiles are people who are displaced from their native country. Now they're living in a foreign land, and they seem strange to the locals because they don't speak the language, they don't dress the same way, they eat differently, they have different customs and traditions that grew out of a different culture than the one that they're in now. So also with followers of Christ. The world largely doesn't follow him, and so we're going to be strangers and aliens. We're going to look different. We're going to have different belief, different values, different trajectory, a different king than the one that most people are under and following. The more we embody the life of the kingdom, the more we stand out as different in the earthly kingdom. So it shouldn't surprise us that we find ourselves feeling like outsiders. Knowing that we're out of step with the mainstream, it shouldn't surprise us if we're not liked because of that. Even if we're persecuted, that's not strange. Nobody knows that more than Jesus, the perfect man who was crucified by this world. We will be strangers. The second implication of being citizens in the heavenly kingdom is that we've been given a great privilege. Because the kingdom that is not of this world is everything we could want and more. It's God's lavish grace to undeserving people. It's, it's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if you will. It's the fulfillment of all our legitimate desires. It's what anybody would want if they could just see it as the true, beautiful, amazing thing that it is. Jesus said a parable in Matthew's gospel. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that is not of this world, is like treasure. It brings great joy to those who really know it. And even if you have to sacrifice something to have it, if you must be strangers in a strange land, it is totally worth it. Like that person who in his joy says, I'll give it all up because I got this now. 
What Jesus is doing as the King of Kings is building a renewed humanity, a distinct people that is not of this world. And the vibe and the feel and the practices and the priorities of those people is what we call gospel culture. When the church is embracing and living out the the flavor of this heavenly kingdom. Now let's break this down into some specifics. What makes us strangers and exiles in the world? In what ways is gospel culture different from the world's culture? Well, what Jesus said to Pilate gives us some important traits of the not-of-this-world kingdom. The life of heaven shows itself in our allegiance and in our ethics and in our love. So that's where we're going to go. Let's unpack each one of those. The first one is our allegiance which is our allegiance to Christ. That is number one foundational pillar that has to be there for us to have the sweetness of gospel culture and heaven on earth. Jesus said to Pilate in verse 36, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. This is a description of those who follow Christ. He says, They're my servants. Servants do the bidding of a master. They recognize it's their responsibility to serve him. That's their priority. But to be a servant of Jesus is not just like working a job you don't like, but you have no choice. It isn't just duty. It's personal attachment to him. It's service that's born out of personal allegiance. Because Jesus said, if it was important that I not get arrested and crucified, my servants would have been fighting. If I were starting an earthly revolution, they would have risked their lives for me. They would go into battle to protect me because they're not just doing a job. They're, they're all engaged. They, they're, they're, told they're, they're all in. It's allegiance. But... That wasn't his will, that they fight for an earthly kingdom. Peter had this flash of misguided courage when he tried to take off somebody's head with a sword when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden. But Jesus shut that down immediately. He says, no more of this. His kingdom isn't going to come by force, but it's going to come by a cross and a resurrection. And so that's what his servants will be about. To be a servant of Jesus means your allegiance is to Christ and to the kingdom He's bringing into this world. It means we reserve our ultimate commitment to Him. He stands above every and all other allegiance. Paul said to the Philippians that to live is Christ and to die is gain. While we live in this world, our lives center around Christ as we embody more and more the life of heaven in our souls. It means Jesus is the center of our worship. It means that his grace to undeserving sinners like us is the the glue that holds us together. It's our bond and the bond in the spirit. It means Jesus is the one that we represent to the world all around us. They see the church, they think, well, those those people follow Christ. And what what they see us doing is what they see, well, that must be what Christ does. So we're representing Him. He's the center. To live is Christ. And dying is gain because it means we get to be in the immediate presence of Christ forever. Gospel culture, the aroma of heaven and earth, begins and ends with our allegiance to Christ. 
That's where our ultimate commitment is. And so here's an implication. It means our allegiance, our ultimate commitment is to Christ and not to political parties and causes. Going into 2022, one of the main things that can threaten the existence of gospel culture among us, among any church, is how we think and talk about politics, about our opinions concerning what we think the government should or shouldn't do. I think we have to talk about this because people hold strong opinions. <laughs> Just the word politics. The, the alarm bells go off. We have strong opinions about whether to vote Republican or Democrat, strong opinions on vaccine and mask mandates, the role of the police force, the national debt, social programs, education, and on and on it goes. And that's understandable because there are important things there to talk about. They do affect us. There are good and bad outcomes depending on what the government does. But because they're important and because we have strong opinions, and I would say also because we have strong fears, those topics become prime candidates to replace Christ as what we're most passionate about. We can begin to shift our hopes away from the Savior and put them onto political parties and political leaders and political actions. So it becomes no longer to live as Christ, but rather to live is to get the government to do X, Y, or Z. That's what really gets my juices flowing. That's what energizes me. And then that becomes more important than the gospel. And when that happens, we no longer have gospel culture because the center has eroded. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters explained how this shift happens among well-intentioned believers in Christ. The setting of the Screwtape Letters is World War II, where they were divided on whether they should be patriots or pacifists. Should they support the war effort or should they abstain? Uh, in the screw tape letters are these fictional letters between one demon, screw tape, who's mentoring another demon on how to tempt a certain man away from Christianity. And in the letters, God is called the enemy. Here's what screw tape counsels the demon to do with his man All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. Let him begin by treating patriotism or pacifism as a part of his religion, and then let him, under the influence of a partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism or fill in our current controversies. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. You see the subtle shift, don't you? 
We start out wanting the government to do something we think is good, and then under the influence of a partisan spirit, that cause can gradually become the most important part of our religion, the thing we're most passionate about, the thing we want to discuss even when it's not the topic of conversation that we'll inject into every conversation if there's the opportunity. It's the thing we start to defend as central to our hope instead of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Once our cause matters more than prayers and sacraments and charity, then the gospel culture can no longer happen because we aren't on the same page anymore. A political idol can replace Christ. Now, there's a place to talk about what the president is doing and what the Supreme Court is doing and all of that. Those things matter. There is good to be prayed for and good to be involved in as we can. But the hope of the world is not in a political solution. It is in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven that only He can bring into this broken world. Put not your trust in princes, says Psalm 146.3. Gospel culture, the life that belongs to the age to come, is grounded in allegiance to Christ over everything else. But it only thrives among people who are humble and amazed at God's grace to sinners and who are most passionate about that. And I would add that this allegiance to Christ is also the only way that we can profitably talk about the political issues. <laughs> if we're all on the same page about what's most important and we really believe that's the most important thing, then the energy level is taken out of the political conversation because now it's not our life that we're defending. It's an opinion about what we think is the best thing to do given our circumstances, and we're going to have different opinions. So we can talk about it and bring God's Word into it because that's the only way that we can resolve whether these opinions are good ones or not. And that leads to the second part of gospel culture that has to be there. It's our ethics grounded in the truth of Scripture. Ethics grounded in the truth of Scripture. Ethics, to use a generic definition, refers to the moral principles that govern a person's behavior. Moral principles that govern a person's behavior. And in the kingdom of God, those principles come from God and not from the world. Going back to John 18, Jesus said to Pilate, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus is bearing witness to the truth, and that truth is what we are to listen to as his servants. If we are in his kingdom, it means listen with the intent to trust and live out that truth. Pilate said, what is truth? Because he either doesn't know what to believe or he doesn't know that there is any truth anywhere. But there is truth. And Jesus tells us what is the truth. In his prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word. God's word, meaning every word that flows from the mouth of God, is truth. 
The Bible is the truth, every word of which is breathed out by God, according to 2 2 Timothy 3.16. The truth that Jesus came into the world to bear witness to is the content of the Scriptures, in which the storyline is always there, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that the world is broken, and Christ has come in to restore and renew what's been broken. That is the truth. That is real worldview unassailable, fact, authoritative. (laughs) Everyone in the kingdom will live by the moral principles and specific commands of the Scriptures, which are the truth. Because there's a way that it looks in the kingdom of God, and it's described for us in this book. We want to do that because the truth of Scripture guides us into the life that belongs to the age to come. It points us to the heavenly kingdom, which is, which is a beautiful place. It's where we would all want to be. It's a good and right path. Paul said in Romans 12 that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. There is no command or principle in the Bible that is bad for us. Every single one of them is good for us. We don't always think that. But if it is truth, then it is that. And we adjust to what it says. It is good. It is acceptable. It is perfect. It is for our thriving. It's what leads to the beautiful community that is heaven breaking into earth. That's attractive. The truth of God's Word, all the principles, the morality of it, it teaches us to be humble. It teaches us to be honest. It brings contentment, gratefulness, preferring others in love, working hard at noble tasks, generosity towards those in need. It teaches us to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves because they're fellow image bearers. And they deserve it. Now, here's an implication of that for our lives. It means we derive our ideas of morality, of right living and right thinking from the Scriptures and not from the majority opinion of all of those who are around us when it disagrees with God's truth. You might not be aware of it when it's happening. But you and I are always being discipled, always being trained how we should think about everything. We're always being discipled, whether you know it or not. News doesn't come at us from a neutral position of just facts and information. It comes with commentary. It comes with opinions about whether something is good or bad. We are told what we should be outraged about and what we should support by tone of voice, by comments of approval and disapproval. We are being taught how to think about everything. We are being taught what is right and what is wrong every day. But people who are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, they listen to the voice of Jesus, and we ask Him, and we look to Him to tell us what is right, what is wrong, how do I live, what do I believe? 
It all comes from Him who bears witness to the truth. It is why He came into this world. Only heaven has true wisdom. We have fallen and we have foolish, foolish ideas, corrupted by sin. But purity is in heaven. Purity and knowledge is in heaven, and it comes down to us through the witness of the Scriptures. That is what's going to make us strangers and exiles in a world that's following a different set of rules. Because the kingdom of heaven has a different kind of rule system, a different sort of vibe. It says things like, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, from Matthew 5.39. We don't retaliate when, in anger when we've been insulted. That's the wisdom of heaven. That's the morality of heaven. It means you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's countercultural. It means live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Romans 12, 16. There's just no place for pride in the kingdom that's breaking into this world. So many other things like that. Gospel culture is countercultural. It doesn't take on the outrage, the arrogance, the fear or the self-focus of cultural messages, the hope of salvation gives us a different approach altogether, one that's stable and healthy and full of grace towards one another. But it will get you into trouble at times. For example, I don't need to tell you that when it comes to gender and sexuality, the ethics of the Bible go against the grain of the mainstream. God has designed marriage to be the union of one man and one woman in a lifelong commitment, and sexual love is limited only to that union. That is the truth. That is how humanity is to thrive. But it will make you a stranger in the world. And in some cases, it will make you an enemy to be dealt with. But the solution is not to leave the truth for the error, but to demonstrate the beauty of the heavenly kingdom in the human relationships and marriages that we have. The best case you can make for the beauty of God's design in human relationships is happy, humble, God-loving singles and families who listen to, obey, and love Jesus. One of the best things you can do for a broken world is cultivate a gospel culture of healthy relationships, healthy marriages, healthy consciences, healthy speech, healthy convictions that are all derived from the truth. We are to be in the world, but not of it. But we can demonstrate the attractiveness of this life of the world to come. One more trait of gospel culture, one more thing we're to cultivate is our love modeled after the cross of Christ. Our love modeled after the cross of Christ. Going back to what Jesus said to Pilate, he said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Here's an observation. Jesus didn't object to being delivered over to the Jews. 
He did not resist being put to death on the cross. In fact, when Peter tried to prevent that from happening, he said, no more of this. Why? It's because what he came into this world to do was to be delivered over and crucified for sinners. That was intentional. And that is how he loves us, Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Christ was intentional. It was God's plan, Father, Son, and Spirit, their plan to save a people to have eternal life with him. That's love. Love that's not of this world. That kind of love suffers and dies for sinners. It's self-sacrificial. It's self-giving. In time, money, effort, encouragement, it isn't based on the loveliness of the person in front of you. It's based on the heart of God for His image bearers. That's what makes it different from what most people understand love to be which is emotions and a heart for people and so forth. But the root of Jesus' love is suffering and sacrificing for the sake of people who don't deserve it, who are not lovely, who you'd rather not be around. That makes it otherworldly. Gospel culture is formed and displayed in this kind of love. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. With that same self-giving, sacrificial love for the sake of others, while they're sinners and sinning. (laughs) Do this so that they can too experience a, a taste of heaven, a taste of God's grace, and be drawn to Him. And when people experience a taste of heaven, as opposed to just hearing about it, then it's contagious and it's compelling to those who are brought into the experience of it, real, real time. I think of a description of the early church around the 300s A.D. The Roman emperor of the time was Julian, and at that time Christianity had taken hold across the Roman Empire, but Julian wanted to quench it. He wanted to revive pagan religion. He called Christians those impious Galileans, And he was frustrated at the success of Christianity, which he attributed in part to the way that they loved sacrificially even those who weren't Christians. His description was this, These impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also, welcoming them into their agape, that is their Christian love. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. He's being derisive, but he's explaining what they were actually doing. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by display of a false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. See their love feasts and their tables spread for the indigent. Such practice is common among them and causes a contempt for our gods. You see what's going on there, 300s. A.D., they're caring for their own poor and the poor of the non-believers. They're, they're welcoming people, not 
into their, into their meals and their feasts and their homes, not just their own community, but the stranger, the, the pagan, the people that Julius wants to reach. <laughs> and he says, it's working, and, and they, they don't believe us. Why? Because it's heaven on earth. It is God's kingdom breaking into this kingdom. And it's attractive, but it's only attractive if we actually live out what we say we believe with self-sacrificial love. We can be thankful for our foster families who are showing us the way on this. Reaching out to the distressed and downcast in the foster care system with round-the-clock care for someone that they didn't have to have in their life. And they did it. We can be thankful for Alyssa Hooker showing us the way by bringing care portal requests to our attention. Because those are immediate needs in our community that we can often meet. If there was a Julius around in our day, what would he know the church is doing? <laughs> How would he know that there's, there's anything going on there? Well, if we're always out there doing care portal requests and, and, and going out to places we don't need to be in, but we're just compassionate and we, we're involved, and that starts to, to get noticed, he's like, hmm, Something's going on there, and it seems to be taking hold, and we can't discount the love that you show in things like meals and rides and visits to the sick and so many other practical things that you're doing for each other and for those outside. All of that is gospel culture. All of that has the feel and the tone and the aroma of the life of the world to come, and as your pastors, that's what we want to cultivate among us. We won't go to the mat to get consensus on political opinions or any of the other controversies that the world wants us to major on. Jesus doesn't ask us to suffer and sacrifice to promote an earthly kingdom. He says, my servants aren't fighting for that. But he does ask us to suffer and sacrifice to promote the heavenly kingdom. So we will go to the mat. We will give our lives to promote gospel doctrine and gospel culture in this church and from this church. And it is a culture of heavenly, sacrificial love toward one another and those in community. It may not change the world, but it will change one life at a time. And so we'll spend four more Sundays talking about what that gospel culture looks like in more detail. Let me just close with this. As 2021 ends and 2022 begins, what does the world need? What do our homes need? What does our city need? It needs to encounter a kingdom that is not of this world, the kingdom of Christ. It doesn't need us to conform to the kingdom of this world. It needs us to provide a heavenly counterculture, a taste of the life to come, lived out in our church. And I know that it already is being lived out to a large degree, and there's always room for more. <laughs> we aren't experiencing all the joy that can be ours. We need heaven to come down to earth in a way that people can recognize and see that transformation and hope and life are available in Jesus Christ. It's already begun. We've already begun to experience it. And may the Lord increase it in fresh and compelling ways among us in the year to come. Let's pray. 
it's not our own doing to create anything like this, Lord. I know that. I thank you for coming and being born, living, dying, being raised, seated in heaven. Also that there can be a foretaste of your kingdom on this earth and the promise of eternal life and the guarantee of your presence and your Holy Spirit among us. So there can be this community that develops that belongs to the life to come. Oh, Lord, increase it more and more. Help us to be like that person who found a treasure in a field and for joy he sold all he had and bought it. No sacrifice, really, because of the joy that we get. Build that more and more among us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand.